on the wake up. For the most dangerous two hours in radio on the wake up with your host this evening, your brother Cam Kazi the Cutlass. Shout out to my super producer Cindy Ashby for bringing this all together. Shout out to the whole on the wake up radio family, and shout out to you, the listener, the on the wake up radio army. You can check us out at on the wake up radio.com where we have the 24 hours live streaming audio, streaming radio. You can also check out our archives at the SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Definitely hit that like button. And if you know someone who you feel is on the wake up and ready to hear this content, hit that share button and share this content. Coming at you live from FEMA Region 2. Big shout out to acting FEMA Region Administrator Bob Fenton. Bob Fenton, thank you for keeping the lights on, Bob. This evening, ladies and gentlemen, for the first hour, we have a special guest. We are bringing in Dr. Umar Johnson, a.k.a. the Prince of Pan-Africanism. Dr. Umar, welcome to On The Wake Up Radio. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Glad to have you here. So, you know, we we, um, we only have you for an hour, so just going to get right into it. Um... Why don't you tell, you know, I mean, a lot of people know who you are, but you just give a, a brief introduction, who you are, what you're doing. Uh, certainly, Dr. Umar is a certified school psychologist, a doctor of clinical psychology, a political scientist, a pan-Africanist, author of two books, Psychoacademic Holocaust, The Special Education and ADHD Wars Against Black Boys. And the new book, which I'll be bringing to Las Vegas this Friday, May the 14th at the Moments and Memories Banquet Hall, 931 Owen, from 2 until 8, free event, free lecture, plus a Q&A, plus the book signing. And that new book is Black Parent Advocate, The Art of War for Dealing with America's Public and Charter Schools. I am also mm. founder of the National Independent Black Parent Association, former Minister of Education for Marcus Garvey's UNIAACL, and kinsman to both the great Bishop Alexander Wayman and the Honorable Frederick Douglass. Okay, okay. Thank you for that. So, what's... Oh, man. So, so many things to touch on because, you know, it's funny because over the years... I've, you know, I haven't read any of your books, but I've listened to, you know, your lectures and just now with really with the advent of social media, like we're deep into social media now. And there's just so many different clips of you flying all over the place that I know that there are people out there who have heard you speak and who have seen your videos and may not necessarily know what who you are, like who you really are and who there's just the type of um uh, education and understanding that you have behind you, you know, and how you've been an advocate for black parents, black children. Um, your, your new book, you, it's a uh, what is it? The Black Parent Advocate: The Art of War. What? The Art of War for Dealing with America's Public and Charter Schools. Okay, so can you tell us about that a little bit? Yes, that is a book that follows up on the first book, which. I would describe the first book as a book that gives black parents an overview of how the special education and ADHD operations are managed within the school system with an overall understanding of how the school to prison pipeline operates. That would be the first book. The second book 
Black Parent Advocate is more of an intervention manual. So parents often have trouble responding effectively to the agendas and requests of the school system. They don't know what to do. So if the school wants to evaluate your child for a learning disability and you don't agree, what do you say and how do you say it? If you feel your child has a speech and language problem and you want them evaluated for speech and language services, what do you say and how do you say it? If your child is in special education but has not benefited from the special education service, what options do you have with regard to making the school honor their responsibility to properly educate your disabled child. And so in this new book, I cover a variety of topics. They are the most frequently occurring issues that I found in my 20 plus year career in the field of education and psychology. And so if a parent has an issue, they can go right to that chapter in the book. And in that chapter, I will give them the background on their problem So I'm going to give them the background on autism in black children or the background on suspension in black boys or the background on psychiatric medication in the public school. And then I give them a sample letter that they can reproduce and submit to the school to respond and address whatever issue that is pressing at that time. So that's the first half of the book, the sample letters that address the various issues. And then the second half of the book is what we call documentation. And in that part of the book, I teach parents how to read and understand some of the more common documents that they will likely uh, encounter in the school system that they've never been taught to understand. So I teach them how to read and evaluate the psychological evaluation, how to read and evaluate the independent educational program, how to read and evaluate the academic intervention program, the behavior plan. And so basically I just help them really understand what these documents are, how to understand them. So a parent could actually take their child's IEP or take their child's psychological evaluation report and open it up uh, right next to my book, the chapter in the book that deals with that document and they can go section for section and and going section for section, they can learn how to uh, understand it, read it, and evaluate it for clarity and for accuracy. Oh wow, that's so that's a powerful tool right there. So let me let me tell you, sir, Doctor Umar, because I I was a formerly a foster care caseworker out here in New York, and what you're talking about right now with the IEPs. And with the psychological evaluations, I mean, you have people in these schools who will evaluate these children and label them. I don't know if they use the term now, but not too uh, long ago, they were labeling children as mildly retarded and then putting them on the track to receive special education and just pushing them through the system. And by the time they come out at 18, 19 years old, they have that they have that stigma as being labeled mildly retarded. I, I know people who, because I, I know birth parents, because I, I was a foster care caseworker. I know birth parents who were, you know, a little bit older than me, five, 10 years older than me, who had received that label. But as I'm dealing with them, I'm like, wait, you're not mildly retarded at all, you know? And they were given the um the, the diagnoses, uh, schizophrenic, bipolar, when they were not actually schizophrenic or bipolar. They were put on medication when the children were taken away from them. They were, they, uh, sometimes it was because they weren't taking medication that they didn't actually need. And if these parents didn't know how to advocate for themselves first, then there was no way that they were going to be able to advocate for their children. I I had just an example. I had one of my people, one of my birth mothers who was told that she was bipolar. She didn't believe she was bipolar. After I was dealing with her, I didn't believe she was bipolar either. Uh, I just believed that she didn't, she had anger management issues. She didn't know how to manage her anger. She went through the foster care system herself. And then her daughter ended up in foster care. But the doctors just slapped that label on her and told her that she had to be on medication. And part of the reason her child was taken away is because she wasn't complying with her medication. So you have these cycles that are being repeated. And like you said, these parents don't know how to advocate for themselves or their children. 
That's very true. And they're not taught how, and they are deliberately not taught how. The mm-hmm. system depends on the black parent to be ignorant. And if you were to ask me what has been my own personal greatest accomplishment in the area of psychology and education, it would be the fact that I, more than any other psychologist before me or now, have educated black parents more about the system of education and mental health, how to navigate it, how to win, how to intervene, how to protect your children. Personally, what I'm most proud of is how many parents I have been able to help and train and teach how to effectively navigate the system because they depend on them to be ignorant. And over the past 20 years, I've been teaching parents how not to be ignorant, you know, teaching them how to conduct yourself at the meeting, what to ask for, not to mm-hmm. sign paperwork you don't understand. And that's a real big problem. Our parents will sign anything the school asks them to sign without even reading it. And, you know, that is just one of my own personal peeves. Like, how do you sign something you didn't even read? Like, wake up. This is your child. Stop just going through the motions and stop letting the school bully you into doing what they want you to do. Well, you see what you said right there, the bullying part of it. Because, again, working as a caseworker, we were I was always in court because, you know, at least a few times a month. And so you would see a situation where child is taken away. They're in the uh, under the care of ACS. That's what it is out here. But they haven't been remanded to care yet because the parent didn't officially basically sign away their rights to it. So let's say the parent wants to fight it and they say, no, I didn't abuse my child or whatever charge is saying. I didn't do it. In the courts, they say, okay, either you can remand your child to uh, to the you know association, whatever administration for children's services. And um, you can you can you know start your uh, I can't this has been so long now you can start your plan your uh, whatever your program is and then you know possibly get your child back in this amount of time short amount of time or you can go to trial and you can fight it. The parents say okay I want to go to trial because th- this charge out of this is this charge is wrong right. So when the judges then look at the calendar. They go, okay, three months, six months, 12 months. It might be 15 months out before that parent can even get a trial. Meanwhile, their child is wallowing away in foster care, but not officially in foster care because they didn't sign away their rights, essentially. So what what you're talking about, that's just what it sounds like to me. Like they're, they're under the gun and they're making decisions because they feel they have to do it right then and there. You know, that's, something that's along those lines. That's very true. And, and one of the things, always, and, and you're based in New York, is it? Yes. Okay, what part? I'm in Brooklyn. Okay. And so with the parents, they're often made to feel that they have timelines. Parents don't have timelines. Mm. You know, schools have timelines. You know, so we have to produce mm. a psychological evaluation in 60 days. You know, we have to get the IEP done in a certain amount of days after the evaluation is done. So what schools will do, especially in the hood, because they're so disorganized and careless, they will call a parent up on the day before their deadline to have the IEP done. And they'll say, we need you to come and sign this document because we're going to be out of compliance if you don't. And so parents will rush up there thinking, you know, that if I don't sign this, it's going to somehow harm my child. No, it's not. It's mm. The school is going to get in trouble because they should have been had that paperwork done. You don't have a timeline. I always tell parents, stop letting people manipulate you into thinking you have to rush to sign paperwork. If they needed that document filled out on Monday, you should have had it last Monday. You have to teach the school how to treat you because if you let them dump on you and call you up, whenever they feel like it and do this or that, that's exactly what they will do. You know, mm-hmm. so parents just really, they're, they're not educated The schools, expect them not to know what to do. They expect them not to know their rights. And that's why for me, it's just been a real big accomplishment to be able to educate basically an entire generation 
of black parents on how to do things the right way. Uh, for example, most parents don't know that you have a right to a second opinion, an independent educational evaluation, if you don't agree with the evaluation that the school has produced. If you don't agree with their conclusion, you can request an independent eval by a school psychologist mm -hmm. of your choice and the school district has to pay for it. Most parents didn't know that before I taught them. Most parents didn't know the learning disability is not a scientific fact. It is a philosophical idea. It is a hypothesis. Mm. You cannot prove a child has a reading disability. You can't prove a child has a math disability. You can only infer the presence of one. You can only uh, uh, proposition the possibility that they might have the learning disability. Parents didn't know that before I taught them. ADHD was created by the drug companies to get rich off single parented black boys. You can't prove ADHD. ADHD is basically classified off of the complaints of white teachers and black mothers. If, you, if your white teacher complained, your black mother agreed, they're gonna give you a prescription and they're gonna say you have ADHD. There's nothing scientific about it. The whole Justice. thing is a racket. It is a racket. It is a hustle. It yes. is a con game. And it is a multi-million dollar business. Yes, I always say it. I always say it. Like, and I'm, I just use foster care because I know that industry. Foster care is a racket. From the time the child gets in there, they use the Medicaid number. As a caseworker, if we, any piece of paperwork that we're filing for this child, it, it needs to have the Medicaid number because that's how they're getting billed. Everything is being billed off that Medicaid number. And all the services, the medication, psychologists, whatever, behavioral therapy, whatever it is, occupational therapy. Uh, and just like you said, and that's the part that was getting me. I'm, you're answering a lot of questions for me too right now because that's the part that would always get me. How is it that you can go into a room with a whole bunch of people, you, you know, like at, at a school? And then they say, well, I think the child's mildly retarded, whatever they say it is. No, yes, but he has ADHD. And they go around the table and they all agree he has ADHD. And next thing you know, that's the diagnosis. That's what goes on the IEP. And that's what then goes, you know, a little bit further. So now the child's getting education, excuse me, uh, medication. Just like you said, it's a racket. It is a criminal racket. And they are, everybody is benefiting from it, even to the court system. They're all benefiting from it. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and let me say this, too, um, because I know I interviewed tonight is partly to let people know about the Las Vegas event on Friday. And of course, I'll be in Oakland on Saturday, Los Angeles on Sunday. But my next stop when I get back from the West Coast will be Brooklyn. And I will be mm. speaking in Brooklyn at Grand Army Plaza for the Haitian Flag Day, which will be next Tuesday, May 18th from 1 until 6. So for the New York family, oh, okay. uh, they could come out and support uh, Haitian Flag Day, stand in unity against all the killings and the kidnappings and the sabotage of the Haitian society by the U.S. government and the French government. And that'll be again Tuesday, May 18th from 1 until 6. Grand Army Plaza. It's a free event. I'll be speaking along with others. And if anyone has any questions about the uh, Haitian flag day in Brooklyn next Tuesday, they can call 347-617-6873. That's 347-617-6873 next Tuesday, May 18th. But for this Friday in Vegas, at the Moments of Mary's Banquet Hall, that's a free event from 2 to 8. No tickets or registration necessary. 931 Owens. And that will be a lecture from about two to four Q and A, and then I'll be signing books until then. Same thing in Oakland on Saturday. Same thing in LA on Sunday. If anybody needs the flyer, they can text me at two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. I repeat, two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. But what I was going to say is, you know, the very unfortunate thing about this whole miseducation school to prison pipeline situation is that black America has enough money to solve our own problems. Mm. Um, you know, we should not have to subject our children to the public school system, but we do it because we don't care enough 
to create a system for them ourselves. You know, we can cry all day about what they do to our children, and we do have to fight for them while they are in that system. But it's just very disheartening that Black people will waste the type of money we waste every year on clothes and food and vacation and hair and cars and all of this other junk when our children are suffering the way that they're suffering. One out of every four black boys graduates on time. You know, two out of every four will be referred for special ed at some point in their life. Uh, two out of every four will be referred for medication at some point in their life. And if they go to an inner city hood school, those numbers go up even worse. You know, public school is usually a black boy's first introduction into the juvenile justice system and future criminal justice system. So when you look at what America is doing to black children in public school, you ask yourself, why isn't the black community pushing back? Why aren't we doing anything? And it's the same reason why we're so disorganized and devastated in every other area, economics, politics, mm -hmm. because we do not want to use our money to finance our liberation struggle. Black folks will march, we will mm -hmm. pray, we will riot, we will rally, but we will not consistently use our disposable income to finance our liberation. And that is why we, we're the only group in America who does not use its money to benefit its own political and economic agenda. Right. And, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, you said so much right there. It, it, this war that we're in, I heard a, I heard uh, Alton Maddox speaking on the radio one day a few years ago. He said, black people are not poor. We are poorly organized. And he's right. And you just illustrated that point right there. How, I mean, it, part of it, part of it is we, we're not, I think we, we don't really understand what's at stake in this country, you know, like, we're at war, we're constantly at war, war is being waged in our children. And you hear brothers like yourself say that, or myself or other people who say that. And I think it's easy to take it lightly because there's not bombs dropping left and right, you know? But we're, we're at war in this country as melanated people and we don't ever really get to catch a break. You know, if you're a black man walking around this country, you know that there's a chance that, you know, you might not make it home. You might get assaulted on the way home, whether it's by racists, whether it's by police, you know, our women, our, our women are, are being left vulnerable out here. And it, we, we can't like, we, I don't know what it's going to take. I feel like if we were all on the same page about a few things, right? or if a majority of us were on the same page about a few things, we could turn our situation situation around in five to 10 years, you know? Imagine we were on the at the point where we could create a five-year plan as a people, a 10-year plan as a people. I'm sure we would execute that five, 10-year plan way before we expected it, if we just allowed ourselves to do it. But we don't, we don't even have the first thought collectively as to where to put our resources, where to put our energy. Well, here's the thing. We have every resource except psychological resource. And what I mean by that is black people have not made up their minds to be free. And we have mm. not made up our minds to commit our resources towards freedom. We don't want to be free. And this is something that I've said over and over again. When you see black people protesting and marching and rioting, they're not doing that because they want freedom. They're doing mm. that because they want to be accepted by white people. Mm. We vote to be accepted by white people. We protest to be accepted by white people. We riot to be accepted by white people. We are mm. not rioting because we want the chance to do for ourselves. We have that chance. We have the money. We have the education, we have the experts, we don't need to rally and protest to build our own schools. You just do it. You don't need to rally and protest to build your own hospitals. You just do it. You don't need to rally and protest to build your own banks, supermarkets, distribution networks, shipping company, manufacturing sector. 
You don't have to rally for that. You just do it. But we are not mm -hmm. interested in building anything that requires us to take responsibility for the outcome. We do not want to take responsibility for the outcomes that we desire. We don't. We want to fight the white man to do it while we waste our money on nonsense. Mm -hmm. This is why people don't feel sorry for black folks in America. How do you feel mm -hmm. sorry for a group of people who have the money to solve most of their problems themselves? Literally, right. we can solve the miseducation thing on our own. We could solve the unemployment thing on our own. We could solve black homelessness on our own. Most of our problems we can solve on our own. We don't want to. We don't. We simply want to be accepted by white folks. We don't mind being oppressed. Black folks don't mind being oppressed. Right. We just want to make sure we can participate when we want to within the mainstream American society. You see, and you, and you see our dependence on white folks. We have a psychological dependence on white people. That's why so when we get educated, we move right into the neighborhoods. The first thing we do, mm -hmm. if I can afford it, I'm going to get me a house right next to white folks. Doesn't matter right. that their kids, their kids ain't going to play with your children, but that's what mm -hmm. we want to do. We, they are our standard of yep. excellence and achievement. You know, you must first have psychological independence before you have any other kind. And we do not have psychological independence. We are just as psychologically dependent on white folks today as we were 200 years ago. Right. And I think it's appropriate what you're talking about. You know, that you're going, um, you'll be in Brooklyn for the Haitian Flag Day. And what did Dusty Bookman say? It's something along the lines of you got to kill the white man's God. Get the white man's God out of your brain. Right. Uh, what I was saying, um, it's appropriate because, you know, you're coming to Brooklyn for the Haitian Flag Day on the 18th. And what did Dutty Bookman say? But kill the white man's God or get the white man's God out of your brain, right? He says something along those lines to our people in, the, in IET. And that was to set off the revolution. That was to get them in the right mindset so that they could even uh, think to grasp revolution and liberation. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about revolution, first R for me stands for responsibility, financial mm. responsibility, political responsibility, personal responsibility. And we're talking about responsibility to the collective black community. See, one thing black folks are not used to, and that is being accountable to other black people. We're not used to that. Most of mm. us will never work for a black person. We might be managed by a black person, but most of us will never be employed by a black person. So we are not used to being accountable to each other. We're used to being accountable mm. to white people and Chinese people. We're not used to being accountable to black folks because it's rare that you will ever have to do so. But the liberation struggle requires that I be accountable to you and you be accountable to me. That is in direct contrast to the indoctrination of the American Negro who have been taught that the only person they have to answer to is the white man. Mm. Again. See, and so this is why <laughs> when we talk about reparations, and I support reparations, but the mm -hmm. one thing that we have to understand once again, a lot of our problems, reparations will not solve them. And I support right. reparations. I support reparations. The right. Honorable Marcus Garvey is the father of the modern reparation struggle. He was one of the first to demand reparations uh, for African people when he demanded a return of the former German colonies to the UNIA so that they could be created and to uh, use as communities so that Africans around the world who wanted to go back to their ancestral homeland could do so. But you can't, there's no dollar, there's no price tag on self-hate. You can't cure self-hate with money. You can't cure the male-female relationship crisis with money. You can't kill the lack of accountability that we have for one another with money. Do we need the money? Sure, we can use it. But if you can't even use the two trillion, you waste every Thank day you. responsibly. <laughs> if you Thank can't you. even use that responsibly, what are you talking about reparations for? Right. You see, so we're always <laughs> looking for an excuse. We're always looking for an excuse and an easy way out to not do what needs to be done. Right. 
and thank you thank you for saying that because just like you said we have the money at this point we have the money where if they don't want to give us reparations we don't need it because if we were organized enough and we had the right psychology as you're saying then we could take the money and the resources that we have right now right now and put them together and do what the, what needs to be done you know Absolutely. and I have so many views on reparations. I mean, for one thing, reparations, it's it's a diaspora-wide thing. You know, I see uh, brothers and sisters fighting for it in the States, in the Caribbean, in Africa. But uh, in the States, you don't necessarily see, you don't necessarily see people incorporating the rest of the diaspora in the reparations um, uh, conversation. And they're really going for chicken feed. And I think on some level, they really think that reparations is going to come from white people or from the U.S. government. It's like, yeah, but not really, you know, because when you really look at who profited from slavery and the uh, the African slave trade in general, uh, the genocide that occurred over the hundreds of years, they're corporations. Some of them are the part are of the major multinational corporations who are running the world right now, who have, you know, trillions of dollars as it is. So, you know, the, the, the reparations conversation, and then you got a lot of people arguing about who should and who shouldn't get reparations in this country. It's like, hold on, like it's an international issue. We're over here bickering about the wrong thing. We're arguing over who should get reparations and not talking, discussing who owes us reparations. But again, we necessarily have to have that conversation if we thing together if we were psychologically prepared for those reparations I think that those Africans in America and ultimately the entire world but especially those Africans in America who are serious we're going to have to separate politically or not physically but politically from those who are not serious because you have so many black folk out here who act like they want to do something significant but they don't uh they're just engaging in the superficialities of consciousness you know the youtube videos the debates the town halls the uh social events but when it actually comes to african racial reconstruction when it comes to American African reconstruction that is the creation of institutions and systems to serve the community and to help us detach from our dependence upon the white power structure. There's very few people who are willing to do that work. Very few people who are willing to do that work. I look back over my 20 plus years of career as an organizer, school psychologist, and Garveyite, and I look and I could probably count on one hand the amount of my peers who I felt were truly serious about doing the work. Most of us don't want to do the work. We want to be around the work. We want to be around the leaders of the work. You know, we want to mm. uh, absorb the energy of the work, but we don't actually want to do the work. We don't. You know, I look at all the people who have joined me through the years and say, Doc, I'm here to help you. But when it comes time to actually carrying out an assignment, very few people do it. And those who complete the assignment, the assignment, very few will have done it in a qualitative, incredible manner. We play with revolution. We play with liberation. Mm -hmm. They're just catch words and catch phrases and catch terms. We're not serious. Even when you look at the conduct the, the, the popular black consciousness community, and of mm -hmm. course, New York and Chicago have the largest ones, but we have them all over the country. And right. it, is, it is basically a YouTube theater. It's all videos. It's all talk. It's all intellectual masturbation. You can mm -hmm. go up Thank to you. your top 20 names in black consciousness and ask them, what are you doing in the community to make it better? They can't answer you. They're not doing anything in the community. It is a YouTube platform. That's what kind of black consciousness has been reduced to YouTube. That's all it is. There's mm. very little being done. And one of the biggest differences between black consciousness today 
and black consciousness in the 60s is in the 60s, you couldn't call yourself conscious if you wasn't actively engaged in work, wasn't helping someone, helping some movement, being a part of some initiative. You couldn't get away with just talking on YouTube. But today right. we have went from the activism of the 60s to the intellectual masturbation of the 21st century. Right. And and I would even say that in the 60s, just from what I, you know, I've heard from my elders, the ones who weren't doing the work, like, okay, put it like this. Even the feds and the informers had to do work. They had to come in and they had to get their hands dirty in order to prove that they were, that, that they could even be trusted on a certain level, you know, like I, you've probably seen this video. I think the guy's name is Darthard Perry something along those lines and he was he was working for the feds he was a brother who was working for the feds back in the 60s and he came in he um what, what's the thing out in oakland i can't remember what it is now or um is it oakland or watts i can't remember what it is but he, he was out there putting in work basically you know he built the sound stage uh, poetry i can't i can't it was a writer's writer something out in california like that had to still do work. Nowadays, these online fed motherfuckers, pardon my language, <laughs> can can sit there like that and do their YouTube videos and cause controversy and stir things up. Actually have to do work. And doing work isn't, there's nothing glorious about it. You know what I mean? There's nothing flashy about it. What people see is maybe someone who is putting in work and who carries a certain aura about them because of that or because of the person that they are and they want to grab onto that and they want to be that and they want to try to emulate that but they don't know that actual work has to go into that you know whether it's study research uh whether it's just you know tutoring children whatever it is whatever contribution people are making to the community there's nothing flashy about it and you see a lot of people fall to the wayside who just they're not ready to pay those type of dues for their community. But if more of us were doing that, again, we wouldn't have to ask anybody for anything out here. That's the funny part about it all. I totally agree with you. The other point that I would add to that is we have to understand the economics of loyalty. You know, and one of the <laughs> Talk reasons about why it, so, <laughs> one of the reasons why it's so easy for people in other communities to remain loyal to those communities is because they can access services and opportunities within their community. If a Jewish kid needs a job, he can get it from a Jew. If a Chinese kid needs a job, he can get it from a Chinese person. Mm -hmm. But in the black community, because we are disorganized and we don't offer any resources or opportunities to our own people, most black people don't see a practical need to be loyal to the black community because they question mm. basically, what does the community do for me? When my mother was hungry, she couldn't get nothing from the community. She had to go to white folks. When she was homeless, she had to go to white folks. When I need a job, I gotta go to white folks. So part of the reason why we have more traders than any other community is because we don't do anything that makes people proud to be a part of the community, especially our young people. They look around and say, what does the black community do for me? Y'all didn't protect me from mm. being expelled. Y'all didn't protect me from being shot by the police. Like what good is the black, what being loyal to the black community brings me what in terms of a privilege? It brings you nothing. And one of the mistakes that I think our uh, historians make is they think that history is the be-all and end-all, and it's not. It's important, and we need to know it. Mm. It's critical, but at the same time, you can teach a Black child everything about their history, but if you don't have any opportunity for them, what good is knowing all that? Mm -hmm. I go and I speak in prisons where the men in the prison are extremely learned, extremely mm -hmm. well-read, extremely knowledgeable. They know as much about ancient Kemet and the liberation struggle in Africa and, and, and the black past. They know as much about that as any of us. But guess what? They're in jail. 
They're not in jail because they was ignorant of their history. They're in jail because they didn't get an opportunity. We can't try to use history to distract from the fact that we're not building opportunities. Teaching a black child who they are is one thing. Giving them an opportunity to become great themselves is something else. And we do, we are not known for helping our children get, I'm not talking about our own personal biological children. I'm talking about the children of the community. They often have to go beg other people outside the community for the things they need. You can't expect mm-hmm. loyalty with that type of a track record. Right, right. And I always say, I always talk to my young bucks and I let them know, it's like you said, loyalty and trust that that's currency right there that's a currency if someone can trust you that's currency that's worth more than gold because you can't come you don't just come across trust with people you know what i mean especially when it comes to our people and so i always tell my people like that's one of those things that especially you know my young bucks like that's something that you value put value on that because you're not going to come across people like that in this world. Right now, just the way things are, come across with those people, those are the type of relationships that you want to cultivate. Because those are the people, like you said, you can call on them, they can call on you. It, we, we need to go back to those days, you know, where a man's word is, is his bond, right? Where you say something, and that's what it is. And you don't have to worry about it, you know? And yeah, like we hear about the ancient times, go to history, you know? where you, people didn't lie the way that we lie today. You know what I mean? People were, uh, if, you, if, if someone said that's what it is, that's what it is. And you didn't have to necessarily worry about if they were trying to deceive you because that's what it is. And that's why even when Europeans first came into contact with Africans and you know other indigenous peoples, they didn't really understand how these Europeans moved because they operated a little bit differently. They used, uh, you know, trickery to get what they wanted instead of just being straight up. You know, they couldn't just like, there's a story, um, you know, Cujo down in Jamaica, his father. Um, Spanish came over to uh, Ghana to come see them and they put all their copper together, all their copper coins together and say, look, yeah, we got copper. You know, you know, we'll show you where it is. We'll show you our storehouse of copper. So the Ghana, Ghanaian king is like, oh, the, I think he was a prince or a king. So, you know, we'll show you where the gold is. So they showed them their gold store, you know, and again, showed it to the Spanish. And the Spanish said, okay, we'll show you our copper. Get on the boat. Kujo's father got on the boat with a bunch of his soldiers. And the boat ride looked like it was taking a little longer than it should have. And that's how they ended up in Jamaica. They captured them and then they escaped and became, you know, the Maroons, some of the Maroons in Jamaica. But they didn't think for a minute that these strangers were going to try to kidnap them. I just showed you my gold. I just showed you the beauty of my empire, motherfucker. Like, (laughs) you know, so all that to say is that trust, that's currency right there. And we need to go back to those days. And again, like you've been saying, it goes to the psychology, the psychology of the people. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to On the Wake Up Radio with your host, Kazi the Cutlass, speaking with Dr. Umar Johnson right now. But yeah, let me Doc, also let you, um, Let me also let your listening audience know that um, we're very thankful for all the financial support we got, not only from New York City, but across the entire Empire State over these past six years while we've been fundraising for the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy. And just to give an update on the campus renovations as we stand, we are looking to finish the renovations for the Honorable Marcus Garvey Elementary School and the Nat Turner Jean Jacques Dessalines Gymnasium by the end of the summer. So we have mm. this month of May, we have June, we have July, we have August. So over the next 16 weeks, and we're hoping it'll only take 12 weeks, but definitely over the next 16 weeks, we want to be able to announce that the school has been renovated and we want to host the first annual Unapologetically African Festival on that street right outside in front of the school with the festival outside 
in a conference on the inside. That's what we mm. want to do either the first weekend in September or the second weekend in September. If, for whatever reason, we're not successful renovating the campus by the end of the summer, we're still going to hold the first annual Unapologetically African Festival because we believe, we being the donors, we believe that it is time for us to bring the people to the campus, even if they're not allowed to go inside, just to be outside and to feel the energy and see the blessing that we have in these four beautiful buildings. We want to still celebrate how far we've come in such a short period of time, six years from nothing to two schools. And we will be the only independent school I'm aware of in this country, independent black school that will have two schools and two gyms and will probably be the largest independent school facility uh, once we are finally up and running. So please stay close and follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Umar Johnson, Facebook, Dr. Umar Ifatunde, and just check in because I'm hoping to make that announcement hopefully sometime in July or August that the school is done and that we're inviting the entire Pan-African community to come and celebrate with us at a grand opening in early September. That's beautiful. I'm glad because I definitely wanted to get into that a little bit um, on this interview today. And so you just answered it right there. And so let me ask you, what type of faculty are you seeking out at this point? Well, the other thing I wanted to say right before I answer that question there is for brothers and sisters who want to donate, they can get on their cash app and use dollar sign FDMG school. I repeat, dollar sign FDMG school is the cash app handle for school donations. If they want to use PayPal, they will use FDMG Academy on PayPal. So that will be paypal.me slash FDMG Academy. And if they want to mail check for money or the payable to FDMG, they can send that to P.O. Box 9634, Wilmington, Delaware. Again, that's P.O. Box 9634, Wilmington, Delaware, 19809. And if they didn't catch that, they can just text me for the information at 215-989-98. Now, with regard to the faculty and staff at the school, we have received over 3,000 resumes, and those resumes are from African people all over the world. So there will be at least three rounds of interviews, probably more, so that the interview team can get an opportunity to see people and then also meet people. So there will be three rounds of virtual interviews, and then the fourth will be an in-person interview at the academy um i don't think we'll have any issue finding the people that we need um we have a lot of talent in the black community we have all the mm -hmm. certifications we need but as i said earlier we lack the psychological resource so if you ask me how difficult will it be to find the talent and the competence that's going to be easy the tough part is finding the right personalities for the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy, because you have to make sure you're not bringing somebody in, you know, who is going to push Christianity over African consciousness or Islam right. over African consciousness, you know, or a light skin supremacy or a dark skin supremacy. You have to make sure you're not bringing anybody in front of your children who suffers from the isms, you know, mm -hmm. and so really going through these resumes and going through these interviews with the fine tooth comb is going to be very important for us and for the success of our school because and I don't have to tell you this because of who I am and my popularity there's going to be people who just want to work for the school but who may not have the heart for the job they may not have right. the mind for the job and I see this anyway just in my work you know being a community organizer and activist a pan-Africanist I see people will try to ingratiate themselves to me all the time, but will not value Pan-Africanism. They don't value the liberation of the people. They just want to be around something that's hot, that's popping, that's popular, that's going to give them some sort of a uh, social prestige, if you will. 
but care nothing about the work. Like that has been the that has been the moral of my political journey. Uh, you know, being an organizer, you need people. You need people, but you need the right kind of people. And unfortunately, you know, you attract to yourself a lot of people who are just hangers on. They're not really workers, you know, and I can study people very well. You know, I'm trained as a psychologist, so I can study people very well. And it's just like, why, you know, this sister isn't here because she cares about the movement. She's here because she's looking for a man. You know, that brother's not here because he Mm -hmm. cares about the movement. He's here because he's looking for women. You know, and, 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 and it's very frustrating when you take your work very seriously, but the people you attract do not. And they have a totally different agenda for being in your space, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's disheartening, too. It's very disheartening. I tell people all the time, if it's two things I would have done differently, if had I known that in 2010 I would be propelled to the top of the consciousness movement the way that I have been, I would have already been married. I would have definitely gotten married before I became popular because mm. it's very difficult to find the right woman when everybody know who you are because, right. you know, sisters, they are chameleons. They will be whatever you want right. them to be in order to get you. And then once they get you, the real person comes out. And so people right. ask me all the time, why haven't you gotten married yet? Because it's tough to choose. You know, you don't know who's real. You don't know who's fake. You don't know who's going to try to destroy you if they don't get what they want. Like, it is dangerous to date out here, you know, when dangerous. you're someone with, with, a, with a public image. you got to be extremely careful. Um, so that's the one thing. I would have I I gotten married, hands down. I would have gotten married. And the other thing, and I don't know how much control I would have had over this, but I would have liked to have a dedicated group of brothers and sisters who I could trust with the work. I mean, seriously trust who was serious about the work, who wasn't distracted by social network fame, wasn't distracted by the opposite sex, wasn't distracted by trying to mind my personal business. Uh, Cause you get a lot of that too. people who come around you and they just want to try to get all in your personal business. That's their, mm-hmm. their whole motive is to find out what goes on in your life. You know, so you get all kinds of people, man. And, and I see why it's so hard to organize black people because a lot of us are not right. serious at all, bro. It is a tough, tough road. And, you know, being quote unquote popular doesn't always help either because people kind of cast you in the image of a, of a, of a, of a, of a celebrity. And that can be problematic too, because People, you know, they want to come around for the glitz and the glamour and the pictures and all of that. But what about when it's time to do real work? Nobody's left. So if you're having a social event, everybody's there. Everybody's there for the party. Everybody's there for that. But what about when it's time to organize? Nobody's left. And and that's the problem that and that's the problem that we have, you know. So that's why I'm really looking towards spending more time organizing the young people you know more than half of black america is under the age of 35 i believe it is more than half so we have more people under 35 than over 35 so we really need to focus on getting these young people together and organizing these young people and really helping them uh, get focused on the liberation struggle that's where most of our attention really needs to go to and that's what i'm going to be focusing on so let me ask you another question too. Um, as far as curriculum at the school, will you a or will you be the sole um, curator of the curriculum, or will you have? Largely, I will be because it's my vision, and um, mm-hmm. I'm an educator and a school psychologist, very well credentialed, very well trained, six degrees, educational leadership from one of the top universities. I know exactly what I want to do. So, yes, it is my plan. It is mine. Um, I do have a team. I do have an entire network of educators, you know, who I can call on as necessary for different expertises that I may not have. But, yes, it is my curriculum. I am the creator. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, because, you know, it's, when, I, when we, we part of your the title of your book includes the art of war. And, again, going back to 
the fact that we are in a war right now and as everybody has a role to play in this war you know and just like you said you take your role extremely seriously and I'm I'm really glad that I you know that I, I give thanks especially to you to uh to producer Cindy Ashby for you know allowing me to have this conversation because it gives me it, it takes all the glitz and the glam away and lets me talk to another brother you know what I mean and yes, see sir. where your head is at yeah and, and it's real because the what you. <laughs> A lot of people, I understand how people can get caught up on all, you know, the videos and all that stuff that they see going around. But in the end of the distractions, day. Distractions, brother. So many distractions. <laughs> and it's funny, too, because even when I do interviews, even when I do uh -huh. interviews, I have to be careful because I've had people interview me. And there's nothing more distracting and disrespectful than to come to an interview platform with my level of expertise and background and credentials and have somebody spend an entire hour or two talking about rumors, slander, gossip, beasts, <laughs> hearsay. And I can't tell you, brother, how many times I've been on the radio and that was the topic. And I'm sitting here saying to myself, I could understand that if you were interviewing one or one of these other conscious personalities who don't have anything to offer but their opinion mm -hmm. on things you know i could understand that but you're dealing with a real scholar here you understand you're dealing with right. the foremost school <laughs> psychologists in our black community like we could be spending mm -hmm. this time helping parents i could be telling parents techniques and things that they can use we could be talking about you know the school and what we're going to do and how we're going to be a benefit to the kid there's so much positive content so much useful mm -hmm. a dialogue that we can engage in and i've had people waste my time with the sensationalism you know and and <laughs> one of the reasons why i do appreciate the breakfast club when i do go on that platform is mm -hmm. no matter what people may say about them we do discuss the important things you know, they never waste right. my time with the slander. They don't waste my time with the gossip. They don't waste my time with the rumors. If you look at all five of my Breakfast Club interviews, you know, we get down to the issues of that day. We talk about the concerns, right. the problems, the solutions. And that's one of the reasons why I respect them and yourself. You know, tonight we dealt with serious food for thought, you know, right. and, 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 and I, I get so many people who want to interview me just to talk about what they've heard on YouTube. You know what I mean? Right. That's a distraction. I don't have a YouTube channel. I don't have a YouTube channel. I'm too busy. You know, I have too many plans, right. too many things I want to do for our people before I leave this world. I don't have time for that kind of stuff. To be honest, I don't know how anybody considers themselves conscious and spend all day on YouTube making videos. You're not serious. Right, right. And, you know, like, generally, when we come on the air, when I come on the air, I have two hours. I don't have two hours to talk about whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like you said, the sensationalism and all that shit, I don't. But as soon as the conversation began, I said, no, this is a real scholar. This is a man who's serious about the work that he's doing with his community, you know? And so it was like, it was a kind of a, a breath of fresh air and a sigh of relief for me because... That's what it's about. You know, we need people. We need minds who are going to. This is we're on the radio now. So let's push this conversation along a little bit further. OK, let the people that are listening to this, like you say, have some food for thought, have something that they can kind of bounce around in their minds. You gave me some perspective on things now and, and you confirmed things for me as far as because I saw it from the foster care perspective, you gave it to me from, you know, a completely different perspective, but the same thing, you know, like, we're doing yeah. it like this. There are so many assaults against our people and it starts with the children and our children are the most vulnerable, you know, like the way you and I are talking, these are the conversations that I have with my people on a daily basis. And it's good to know that there are people out there who are doing this work and you like you said now you've gained in the last few years you've gained a certain level of popularity but you're speaking for so many people who are like us and who are out here doing this work in different capacities and you've been able to get over a lot of the pitfalls in order to get this message to a wider audience that's important 
that's essential for what we're in right now. You know, you're on the breakfast club. That, that means everything because a lot of people may not come across a brother like you until they come across a brother like you on the breakfast club. You feel me? Absolutely. And what I always tell people is because, you know, I'll, I'll see people in the street and it's always love, you know, even if they're not supporters, it's still usually, you know, some degree of respect there. And they may say, well, you know, I don't agree with everything you say, but I still support you. And I say, well, it's really no need to say that because I don't know anybody who agrees with everything another person says, you know, but with me, they have to make yeah. sure they, you know, make it known that they don't agree with everything I say. I say, mm -hmm. I don't expect you to. That's number one. But number two, my goal is not to turn you into a Dr. Umar robot. My goal is to make you think. That's all I want you to do. Everybody who hears me, I want them to think. I want to try to motivate them to think critically about issues that they never really thought deep enough about. That's my goal. And if I get you to think, whether you are for me or not, whether you are a supporter or a detractor, if I can make you think, then I have achieved my goal because we suffer from the process of analysis. We do not deeply about anything. We don't think beneath the surface. And that's why it's so easy for us to fall victim. We fell victim to Barack Obama because we didn't mm -hmm. think deep enough about why was he being put out there. Same thing Joe Biden. We didn't think deep enough. Why was he being put out there? You know, the all these different uh, movements that the white power structure got going on in our community. We don't mm -hmm. think deep. Stop and think. Stop reacting and start thinking. I just see black people reacting. You go on YouTube. YouTube is one big reactor. Everybody's just reacting. Did you see this? Did you see that? Right. We can't live our life. Black folks are never going to get anywhere if all we're going to do is react to racism. Racism is always mm -hmm. going to be throwing something at you because that's their job. That's who they are. Yep. But if you're not proactively doing anything for yourself, you're never going to change anything. And the reason why it's so hard for us to really get proactive is we don't have enough love to do that. See, you have to love something to be proactive. You love your child, so you make sure they eat right, you take them to the doctor, you make sure they do their homework. You're being proactive. You're not going to wait till they start failing to make them do their work. You're not going to wait till they suffer from malnutrition before you start feeding them right because you love them love is proactive but when there's no love there you can only be a reactionary a reactionary will only take care of the kid when they're getting sick they're starving and hungry reactionary i'm only taking them to the hospital if he start throwing up reactionary i'm only going to buy him some new shoes and when he start getting you know nails stuck in his feet when you are reactionary you only react to what happens when you proactionary, you take preventive steps to make sure problems don't occur. That requires love. Black people don't have that for ourselves. That's why we don't take any preventive steps. Everything we do as a community is in reaction to what white people do. No proaction whatsoever. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> Listen, big brother, I know you can't stay on all night. Um, because I can keep on going. But I think it's important for people to just, you know, kind of let that sink in what you said right there. Because, you know, each each thing that was mentioned tonight, uh, that, that's a whole lecture in itself. You know? <laughs> just being um, proactive versus reactionary. That's a whole, you know, that that's something that can be, you know, pulled apart and analyzed some more. Because if it, I think it's just, if nothing else, it's important for more people to hear these types of conversations and more people, you know, to kind of just get the intellectual juices flowing. You know, let, let people think about these things, marinate on them, and then come up with their own conclusions and their own solutions to the problems, too. Because, you know, our people are extremely intelligent. And we, you know, we have a lot of different types of intelligence. And 
once we apply that intelligence to something we care about that we're passionate about that's when we can start to create the change that we want to see but it's not going to happen again going back to the original point till we change the psychology of how we think and how we approach these things and we have that love to be proactive absolutely my brother absolutely well listen um you want to um give the people your information how to reach you details anything uh last remarks absolutely um absolutely dr umar will be making a fourth stop what's this friday may 14th in las vegas saturday oakland sunday la saturday may 22nd palm springs california for their unity day sunday may 23rd south bend indiana for the black messiah conference I will be in Fayetteville, North Carolina, June 4th, Statesville, North Carolina, June 6th, Detroit, Michigan, Preschool Educators Conference on Friday, June 18th, Atlanta, Juneteenth on Saturday the 19th in Atlanta, and then I will be in Hartford, Connecticut, June 25th, Springfield, Massachusetts, June 26th, Nashville, Tennessee, July 17th. Louisville, Kentucky, August the 14th for the Honorable Marcus Garvey birthday celebration. Uh, anybody need any flyers for any of that, just text me 215-989-9858. Please support the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy. We are fully independent. We don't take funding from governmental sources or non-African sources. Um, and if you need to reach me, reach out to me. Any issues with your children, if you need a consultation, psychological evaluation report review any other support looking for a therapist for yourself we can make recommendations to get you the person that you need so whatever i can do to make the community better than it is today feel free to call on dr umar thank you and of course haitian flag day tuesday may 18th from one to six uh grand army plaza brooklyn looking forward to seeing all the brothers and sisters out there next tuesday Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Umar, thank you so much for coming through and spending some time with us on On The Wake Up. And, you know, uh, introducing yourself to uh, to us in a whole new way, you know, and to a whole new audience in a whole new way. We really appreciate you just taking the time out to talk with us this evening. Absolutely, my brother. Be blessed. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to On The Wake Up, and we will be back in a moment. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us all unite. OTWTube.com, uncensored free speech platform. Flawed individual. Cindy Ashby 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 Ashby